I'll make all your little recent criminal transgressions go away. So as soon as you apologize and make a full reckoning of your transgressions, I shall absolve you and continue along the path of righteousness. I'm amazed we're in as good condition as we are. What with the rebellion and all? Completed and fully operational before the rebels destroyed it. For the fall of the human race. Ah! He didn't fall? Inconceivable! Fool! You fell victim to one of the classic blunders! He just fell for the oldest routine in the book. The fall of the human race. Are you hearing me? You disobey me. And I will bury you. I will never disobey you again. The choice is yours. Obey me and live. Or disobey and die. Trust rappers will be persecuted. Trust rappers will be persecuted. Trust rappers will be persecuted. Stop breaking the law! Stop breaking the law! Breaking the law. Once we cross the line, there's no way back. Breaking the law! Breaking the law! Breaking the law! Breaking the law! Unfortunately for you, the line you crossed was real. Besides, he crossed the line. And in Bay City, when you crossed the line... The line you crossed was real. Congratulations, you just crossed the line into completely useless. Get out. Every human being ever conceived through already is born contaminated with sin. Where are you going? Back to your life of sin? I have sinned against you. Can I find you guilty, guilty of betraying your fellow man, guilty of betraying your country, guilty of abrogating your oath, guilty of judging me and selling me out? I have sinned against you. We have just begun a uh, new series entitled Big Words for Living. God gives us these rich words, which can be hard to understand, but crucial to understand and believe, because what you believe about anything will determine how you live. What you believe will determine how you live. So, it's important we talk about this. Don't forget, if you have a question, uh, text the question. Uh, to the number you're going to see up here on the screen. And we'll try to end our service answering those things if we get to it today. Um, today's big bad word for living is sin. Sin is the word. Preachers keep preaching about it. Though they, you know, though you may wish to give all preachers a frontal lobotomy that removes that part of our brain that wants to talk about sin. It's like a reflux. Sin's always causing these problems, right? Still causing problems, and we can't seem to get rid of it. So we're going to talk about this this morning, because what we believe about sin significantly affects how we live. I want you to turn your Bibles, if you would, to Romans 3, chapter, or sorry, Romans 3, verse 9. Romans 3, verse 9, we'll read verses 9 through 18. That's uh, page 805 in the Bibles we provided for you. And we're going to talk this morning about sin as a disease. Sin as a disease because I think it's the best analogy for how to think about sin. I spoke with a doctor this week about diseases. And I said, he was talking to me about how on one level, his approach to treating people is pretty simple. He said, when treating someone who is sick, I try to find the root cause of the disease and then I begin to familiarize myself with how that disease begins to work on and corrode the body. And as we approach the disease of sin, 
we'll find that the Apostle Paul speaks of both the root of sin and how it begins to work and work and work on us. So we're going to follow his lead this morning. Romans 3. We're going to read verses 9 through 18. Read with me the word of the Lord. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under the power of sin. As it is written, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, uh, we thank you for your word. Sin is not always an easy subject to talk about. Um, but Lord, we know that your word is so fruitful for our lives. And we just ask that we would be led by it this morning. And that you would show us what we need to see about this word sin. Lord, uh, speak to me during this time and speak to our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's get to work here. The past two weeks, uh, I've listened to persons who have been lied to, cheated on, cheated on out of nowhere, worn down by manipulation, threatened, just grown tired of big shows of religiosity, uh, utterly disregarded by their spouse, and controlled by leaders of a church. Now generally, we're quick to acknowledge, right, that we're no longer surprised by some pretty awful deeds like these. Right? We have, so we affirm the truth of what we just read in this passage, on the one hand. But, when reading passages like the one we just read, don't you guys find that it's, it's, uh, you get bothered by them? That you want to, you read it and you're just like, ugh, let me, let me, let me move past this one. I remember one time I was studying this uh, and someone remarked in a Bible study, you know, passages like this one in the Bible are really distasteful. It's not really that bad. So I was thinking about this this past week and I was wondering, what's the reason for this schizophrenia? What's the reason for on the one hand thinking, yeah, man, it's true. We're not surprised by this. On the other hand, oh man, reading about this is so distasteful. What's the reason for this kind of schizophrenia and reading something like this? And I think the answer can be discovered in one little verse and one little phrase. And it brings us to the root of sin. It's in verse 9 where Paul simply says that all are under the power of sin. All are under sin. The 
this phrase under sin, huf hamartian, which in the New Testament connotates this idea of slavery. You can look it up later, Galatians 2.22. This idea of being under slavery. Or to put a modern spin on it, addiction. Sin addicts. So we're hurt when we see and experience others doing it over and over in their addiction. Others, but not us. But all are under the power of sin. Well, Ryan, that would mean that we'd be the same. What I'm saying here is, in other words, we have a hard time stomaching the truth because buried deep within you and me is something that wants to, that needs to compare ourselves with others. Or more accurately, really contrast ourselves with others, right? And we've seen this before. You may remember this. If you remember the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, we looked at this back, I think, in June in Luke 18. There's this religious man who goes into the temple to pray. Jesus is telling the story about this man. He's very religious. And he looks back while he's praying with one eye, basically, on this sinner. And he prays to God about how good he is, all the good things he's done, and how he's not like this tax-collecting sinner. Even while he's praying... He's comparing himself with someone else. Friends, this is pride. Pride is essentially competitive. Pride is essentially competitive. And we know this, right? If, if I were to ask you, ask you the question, are you a good person? Right? If I asked you, came up to you after the service, I said, would you describe yourself as a good person? My guess is that's, that's kind of a hard question to answer, right? I was thinking how I would answer that. You know, yeah, I mean, in some ways, I mean, I do some good things, but I know, man, I do a lot, of, a lot of cruddy stuff as well. It's just hard to answer that question. But if I were to ask you, hey, are you good compared with that guy? Are you good compared with her? Then it becomes a whole lot easier to answer, right, if we're honest, right? Oh, do you know that guy? Man, if you knew him, you wouldn't even ask that question. Better. Yeah, better. <laughs> right? Pride. The root or core of sin is the reason for our schizophrenia. It's why we all know and experience and suffer from sin, but suddenly dismiss it when its bitterness is applied to us. Why? Because of pride. Friends, the root of sin is misplaced trust. Trust in self rather than trust in God. It's also known as pride. Trust in self rather than trust in God. I can do it on my own. God, I don't need you for this one. I'm pretty good by myself. I might need a little help from you, Lord. It's pride. Now back to this passage. Because Paul does something in this passage that may seem kind of weird. But really, it's brilliant. It's quite brilliant. Paul strings together what appear to be these random verses from the Old Testament and puts them in one place. If there was like a stream of consciousness in the Bible, you know, this would be it, right? 
It's like, oh, I'm going to put this here, I'm going to put this here, I'm going to put this here, I'm going to put this here. It's like random beat poetry together. And it seems kind of just, why did he do this? Well, I went back and studied these passages. And every single psalm, proverb, or chapter in Isaiah that Paul quotes from in our passage has pride as a central theme. It's really cool. I really, actually, I want to talk about this more. I don't have time this morning. But read especially Psalm 10, which is quoted here in, in Romans 3. Pride. Now, why is it so important? Well, if you're out there this morning and you read verses like these and you think, yeah, yeah, it's true. It doesn't really apply to me right now. I, don't, I have to say you're making my point for me. <laughs> That's pride. In fact, you're, you're, it's really... Uh, if you're saying that, you're, you're a living, breathing sermon illustration. <laughs> I wish I could bring you up here. Right? And I are dressed the same way. Man, does this really apply to my life? I say no. Man, it's pride. It doesn't apply to me. Paul also speaks in this passage, though, of how sin begins to work on us. So he talks about the root of sin and how sin begins to work on us. Sin, friends, is a disease with some pretty nasty symptoms. Right? What do I mean? Well, when someone has a, a virus or disease, they have symptoms that show its presence, right? That's how you discover you have a virus or disease. Now, what do we do when we get a virus or disease? We tend to see and also tend to first want to alleviate our symptoms because it's, the symptoms cause the most immediate pain, right? So we want to get rid of them fast. But of course, we know as long as we address only the symptoms, the disease still remains. The cause of the symptoms still remains. Sin works like a disease. Starting inwardly, it works itself outwardly through words and through deeds. Does that make sense? Starts within us. And this is how Paul actually organizes this passage. The first half of Romans 3, 9 through 10. First have these Old Testament verses deal with this inherent disease that a lot of people call original sin. Read with me, verse 10 through 12. He says, no one's righteous. No one seeks for God. There's a sense that which even our value, we've become worthless. There's no good in us. In the second half, Paul deals with symptoms of a disease. The two ways a disease shows itself. Words and deeds. Right? Words and actions. Verse 13. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of, of snakes is under their lips. You know, all these things. Then actions. Their feet are swift to shed blood. People are naturally trying to bring other people down through their actions. Do you see that? It's interesting. It starts with the, the nature of us. The disease in us that is inherently not good. It shows itself in the way we live, through our words and through our actions, right? It's so cool to see how Paul does this. So sin is this inherent and internal disease that causes us to naturally tend towards acts of rebellion against our Creator. Towards these outward acts of rebellion. How much damage does this inward disease do in our lives? 
It's important for us to see this. I know it's not happy. We're going to get to the happy part here in a little bit. But we need the sobering part in our life. How much damage does this do inwardly? And however bad you think it might be, let me just get this in the right frame of mind, it's worse. However bad you might think it's been, usually it's worse. We know this from God's word and we know this from experience. I want to give us a cluster of verses about sin from God's word. All right? First, Jeremiah 13, 23. I love how vivid this verse is. It says, Can the Ethiopian change his skin? Right? Uh, you know, Ethiopian tended to have different skin color. Or the leopard change its spots? Neither can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil. You can't change who you are, especially your sinful nature. Jeremiah 2.22 says this, although you wash yourself with soda and use an abundance of soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me. In other words, you can break out your religious oxyclean, right? Your religious oxyclean of tears, charity work, and church attendance, right? And just work on it, work on it. I feel guilty, feel guilty, work on it. Guilt won't go away. The guilt that results from sin won't go away from that. Ecclesiastes 7.20 says this, There is not a righteous man on earth who does what is right and never sins. Every person sins. This is a worldwide phenomenon. Psalm 58.3 Even from birth the wicked go astray. From the womb they are wayward and speak lies. People are born with sin. Isaiah 59.2 Sin separates you from your God. Sin separates us. We are alienated from God. We need help. Hebrews 12.1 Sin clings so closely. Right? We cannot escape it. We can't escape sin. It, it affects every part of who we are and it clings to every part of who we are. Not too long ago, I was disciplining my uh, youngest son, uh, Gage. And, uh, and that's not his normal hair, um, but I thought it'd be fun. All right, and I was asking him if, <laughs> if, he knew, if he knew that the big no in his heart that was making him so frustrated was called sin. I just threw it out there. Obviously, I knew he didn't know this, right? But you know this is called sin. And he, he just turns to me and says, Daddy, sin has gone from my heart into my blood. And it is going all the way down here. And I said, I said, dude, to your toenails? No, not my toenails, just my toes. Like, all right, that makes sense. <laughs> Terrific. And this kid, he's wise beyond his understanding, right? He's basically explaining what theologians call the doctrine of total depravity. That sin has tainted every part of us. Our mind, our body, our heart. Our families, our cultures, sin affects all of it. And we can't get rid of it. It's like eating onions, right? Uh, you get that dreadful decision of getting onions on your sandwich and you just can't get the stank off. You can try whatever you want. It is not going away. It happened to me a number of embarrassing times this week and I just kept wanting onions. That was a bad decision. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> so we know... We know this not only from the Bible, we know this from personal experience. That we're born 
with something in us that wants to rebel. Even though you set your heart to do good and obey. So often we drastically fail. Even if we're intent on just doing that one thing that we're trying so hard to do. Of course the most tragic example of this are people like abused kids, right? Who grow up passionately intent on doing anything but abusing their kids. And sad how often we see or we hear that the very thing they wished not to do is the very thing they end up doing. That applies to alcoholics, to emotionally manipulated, to children who are the product of a vile, unhealthy marriage. The very thing they don't want to do. The very thing they do. We know this from living in normal society. Alright, I found this really interesting this week. I read uh, from, from a guy named John Stott. And he was pointing out this fact that a promise is not enough. We need a contract. Alright? Doors are not enough. We have to have locks for them. Payment of fares is not enough. We have to be issued tickets, which are punched, inspected, and collected. In other words, the things we take for granted in society as necessary are really just products of how sinful we are, right? We can't trust anyone, right? Our society is naturally tending towards sin. That's how we have all of these things, things we consider being normal. I thought that was really interesting. Think about that. Finally, as often... As I often like to share, we also know the reality of being born with sin from our children. I remember the first time hearing this song from singer-songwriter uh, Sarah McLaughlin. And I heard this song over, it was like I was shopping or something, and it was, it was called We Are All Innocent. And the idea is she compares us favorably to children. We're kind of like kids, we're all innocent. And I thought to myself, does Sarah McLaughlin have children? Right? Is she even an aunt or a godmother? Because if she was, she probably is. I'm sure she's a great lady. But one of the first five or six words a kid learns to tell his parent or any authority figure is no. Right? You may get a dada, a mama. You even get the slightly humorous poopy. Right? Poopy. But somehow they learn no basically out of the womb. I don't know how it gets to them. Someone like just transmits it to them on, on baby, baby vision, right? I don't know. But they learn it because it's inherent in them to rebel from birth. They have it born with it in their hearts. Now, why does this all matter? Why does what we believe and understand about sin matter to the way we live? I want to give us a few reasons. When it matters to sharing your faith. Unless a person grasps and personalizes sin, he or she hasn't grasped and personalized the gospel. Okay? Why do we call Jesus Savior? Why? It's because he saves us primarily from the effects, the judgment, the wrath that sin brings along. Even from sin itself, he saves us. Because it separates us from God. It's tempting when someone's struggling 
to present Jesus to them as only a solution or patch that can fix their problem. Right? And I want to be clear. Jesus can give people peace. Absolutely. He can, but we'll present them. Jesus gives you peace. Jesus gives you joy. Jesus can help you in this circumstance. And yeah, Jesus does do those things. Don't get me wrong. But if he's only a solution for those temporary problems, something else will always crop up in life. Right? Something else will always come up because we have this disease in us. Whether it be bitterness that crops up or whether it be deceit that crops up, something will always pop up. Because the real problem is that everyone has this inherent disease. And we need to tell people about this, as hard as it is to hear, because they need to see why Jesus is the real solution and how much he loves us. It matters also to addressing society's ills, right? Often talk about this in terms of social justice. Guys, we cannot change circumstances before hearts are changed. Circumstances can't be changed until hearts are changed. Now people from many different walks of life acknowledge that in our societies we have problems. But they often have different reasons. For instance, to the Marxist, right? The problem is unequal redistribution of wealth, right? People are poor and it's unequal. And so the solution is state control over the economy. Right? We've seen how that works. Usually not well. A less extreme example of this would be, to many people, the problem with, the problem with society is, is ignorance. So the solution is what? Education. So if people are convincingly taught, for instance, that smoking is bad... If they're convincingly taught that smoking is bad, they wouldn't smoke. And yet, guess what? People do know that smoking is bad and people smoke. Smoking is bad for them. People smoke. Why? Uh, We changed hearts. Right? We can be educated about something. We can know something and yet we still do it. Because we have a disease in us. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't be generous, nor am I saying we shouldn't educate. In fact, I would say care for people by holding out food, education, practical love, and the solution of a Savior. Matters to loving your neighbor. Understanding sin correctly matters to loving your neighbor. How do you perceive and treat your neighbor when they're caught in sin? How do you really look at them? Right? I love, I love the story of this guy, um, John Bradford, uh, an old reformer. He watched this criminal going to the gallows to be executed. And he turned to his friend and he said, You know what? There, but for the grace of God, go I. There, but for the grace of God, go I. If it wasn't for God's grace, I could easily be me. That could easily be me. People who know Jesus are so in touch with their sin that the sin of others causes them to look at themselves and see their own potential to do the same thing. There, but for the grace of God, go I.
Knowing about sin matters to your walk with Jesus. I love this. There's a pastor who said this so well, that till sin be bitter, Christ cannot be sweet. Till sin be bitter, Christ cannot be sweet. Now this seems paradoxical, right? Why would you internalize, personalize, consider something, you know, that's so ugly and nasty as sin? Now it can't be healthy to do that to yourself, right? I would say, no, it's gloriously healthy. It's gloriously healthy. I'm not perfect at explaining this, but seeing to the greatest extent of Christ's love, seeing the greatest extent of Christ's love for us, seeing to the deepest depth of how God was truly saving an enemy, an enemy when he saved me and forgives me. Oh, man. It's a delightful, glorious truth that brings inexhaustible joy to life. It's awesome. It's why Paul could say later in Romans 5, where sin increases, grace increases all the more. It's why Jesus said to a sinful woman and a man with pride, he who is forgiven little, loves little. In other words, unless you confess sin and are forgiven much, you can't love much. So get in there. Acknowledge sin. Confess it. And man, you'll know how to love. It's radical. But it's awesome. It's something that not only Paul got, but the Old Testament saints. The Old Testament saints got this before there was something to get. Which means they got it by faith. Namely, that the bitterness of sin would allow for a much sweeter redemption. Now you remember earlier, I mentioned that pride was a central theme in all these Old Testament verses, right? All these Old Testament passages that Paul was quoting. He quotes this and that and this and that, right? I mentioned this earlier. It's one of two themes, One of two themes. Paul chose these Old Testament passages that explored in depth the root of sin, which is pride, and he chose them because they looked forward to a coming salvation, a rescue from the helplessness of this disease, of this pride. This is so cool how he does this, how he chooses these these, these chapters, these verses. Isaiah 59, which is verses 15 through 17 of Romans 3. Isaiah bookends his discussion of personal and collective sin. He talks about sin, but at the beginning and at the end, here's what he says. Isaiah 59.1, Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save. And check it out, a messianic uh, prediction. Isaiah 59.20, A redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. Psalm 14.7, After speaking about how there's no one who seeks God, David proclaims in the Psalms, Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. They looked forward to a time when the bitterness of sin would allow for a sweeter redemption. And we, through Jesus Christ, get to experience this if we trust our lives to him. 
You see this? It's radical. And it's hard. I love this quote. I didn't mean to share this this morning, but I love this quote. A woman named Flannery O'Connor says it. The truth doesn't change according to our ability to stomach it. It's hard to stomach this reality. But it makes the glorious reality of Jesus' redemption so much sweeter. And it's all about him, guys. In August 1957, four climbers, two Italians, two Germans, were climbing a 6,000-foot near-vertical north face in the Swiss Alps. All right, my friend Jonathan, I think it was in Switzerland this summer. In the Swiss Alps, these two Germans disappeared and were never heard from again. The two Italian climbers, exhausted and dying, were stuck on two narrow ledges, 1,000 feet below the summit. The Swiss Alpine Club forbade rescue attempts in this area because it was far too dangerous. But a small group of Swiss climbers decided to launch a private rescue mission to save these two climbers. So they carefully lowered a climber named Alfred Hellepart down a 6,000 foot north face. He went about 1,000 feet down, suspended on a cable a fraction of an inch thick as they lowered him into this abyss. Here's how he describes his experience in his own words. As I would lower down the summit, my comrades on top grew further and further distant until they disappeared from sight. At this moment, I felt indescribable aloneness. Then for the first time, I peered down into the abyss of the Norse face of Iger. The terror of the sight robbed my breath. The brooding blackness of the face falling away in an almost endless expanse beneath me made me look with an awful longing to the thin cable disappearing about me in the midst. I was a tiny human being dangling in space between heaven and hell. The sole relief from terror was my mission to rescue the climbers below. Friends, we are, in some cases, or we were, trapped. But in the person of Jesus Christ, God lowered himself into the abyss of suffering, into the terror of sin. And in Jesus, God became a tiny human dangling between heaven and hell. He did it to rescue trapped and helpless people below. People like you and me. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, one thing I felt like you really wanted to communicate and you do through your word and, and I pray that you would through this morning was that sin is a disease, something we can't wipe out on our own. Simply we can't erase by good works or efforts. But it takes something much deeper. Or what a tragedy that people should live their lives and never connect the symptoms with the disease. They see so much horror around them, Lord. And they see horror even from their own hearts. But they never connect it with the disease and their need for you, Jesus. Oh Lord, if, if 
someone here is among that lot, Lord, I pray that you would just impress on them the disease, Lord, and that there is a cure in Jesus Christ. And Lord, for those of us who are trying to walk with Jesus, help us to not be afraid to go to a loving God with the ugliness of our sin because we know that you want to forgive us. We know that you want to experience the full depth, the full magnitude, the full sweetness of your grace and forgiveness. Lord, we can't do this unless we understand sin. We personalize it in our own lives. That's a radical thing to do. The world would tell us we're crazy. We're telling ourselves negative thoughts or negative self-talk. But no, Lord, there's a Savior for these things, a real Savior who saves people from death, from sin, from guilt, and brings them to everlasting life and abundant joy here on earth. And we're so grateful. We love you, Lord. That's all in Jesus' name. Amen.